welcome to episode 58 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing fine. Watching movies. Going to catch up with a few from the end of 2021, but we're talking about three of them today. Yeah, I feel like I'm still a very long way to having like a top 10 list, uh, but we're just like chipping away. I feel like we can't definitively like rank a top 10 until like March or something like that. But uh, the first title we are going to discuss is very much one of the uh, most highly regarded movies of 2021. And it is definitely a favorite for uh, Best Picture, especially uh, considering what happened at the Golden Globes. Um, it is The Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion in her first movie in 13 years. Is that right? I think Bright Star was the last one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 12 years. Also the director of The Piano, which was very successful at the Oscars in the early 90s, uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Jesse Plemons, Kirsten Dunst, and Cody Smith-McPhee. It is a psychological revenge Western set in early 20th century Montana, originally premiered September 2nd at the Venice Film Festival, released wide November 17th, 2021, and became available on Netflix, I think December 1st. Um, A Metacritic score of 89, a Rotten Tomatoes score, of 94 and the recent winner of the golden globes for best motion picture drama and best director uh you saw this at the new york film festival is that right i did not the next one we're talking about i did see but i saw it in a theater okay i saw this on netflix i wish i had seen it in the theater um this is a very slow movie a friend of mine described it as pretentious (laughs) I, I don't necessarily think it is pretentious, but I could definitely understand people being frustrated with it because um, it's not a shoot 'em up Western. Let's no, say it that. is not a shoot 'em up Western. And it's like, if, if listeners are familiar with Jane Campion's work, this is very much sort of in line with her previous work, especially from the Bright director Star. of the piano. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like very much concerned with people living in these sort of like far off locations, uh, period pieces, sort of about isolation and dealing with your environment. Um, but it and also sexuality. has like, sexuality and it has like a really intense sort of revenge slash sort of romantic relationship at the center of it. Um, but the one thing sort of I take from this movie is like, this is for me, uh, the high point of Benedict Cumberbatch's career uh, by far. And I think he definitely would be a deserving winner for best actor. This is one of those performances where you're just sort of like mesmerized by how completely he sort of becomes the character. He plays this like gruff uh, ranch owner who, Uh, on first sort of viewing seems like he's just sort of like this like guy born from the dirt who's like you know lived a ranch hand his whole time but then you find out that he like studied the classics at Yale and so you're just like what the hell is up with this guy and a lot of the movie is just sort of revealing uh, the sort of reasons why this person is the way that he is and the sort of complex um, sort of set of circumstances and influences on his life that makes him who he is um this is a very sort of weird movie to talk about because you don't really want to spoil anything because such an important part of the movie is just sort of experiencing the sort of stuff that happens when it happens but 
Uh, it's one of those movies that you're watching it and it's not difficult to follow or really convoluted, yeah. but the meaning of what's happening takes some pondering and reflection. Yes. Would you say that's... Uh, yes. And it was, it was very difficult to see sort of where things were going to go. But for me, that was very much part of the excitement because it's a very unusual story. This is based on a novel from the late 60s, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, uh, it's such like a, it's so much about these four individual characters. There's the two people who own the ranch, Bennett Cumberbatch and his brother, played by Jesse Plemons, who Bennett Cumberbatch's character just sort of like psychologically torments and continually puts down. <laughs> And then he marries a woman who runs a hotel and her son sort of comes in and out of the movie before being like a really big part of it for the last hour, um, played by Cody Smith McPhee, who probably, I guess people would best know from the Planet of the Apes movies. Which one was that? And he, uh, he he's one of those He's one of those kid actors. I'm like, wait, was he on Stranger Things or what? But yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but no, he's very good. I mean, I think that he could win. It's an incredible performance. Actor. Yeah. And it's like really sort of difficult to understand like what is sort of up with this kid. Like, <laughs> I don't really understand what his motivations are. Um, and it's one of those ones that uh, there's like a voiceover at the beginning and it's very easy to sort of forget how a movie starts like when you're in it and near the end, but by the end, the opening voiceover is so sort of important to the motivations of the Cody Smith McPhee character that uh, it very much sort of colors um, just sort of like the whole point of the movie, really. And it would be a very confusing ending if it didn't have that voiceover at the start. Do you know which one I'm referring to? Where mm-hmm. it's like all a boy can do is, you know, make his mother happy. <laughs> uh, I just want to add that probably two of his best known films, he's uh, the boy and the road with Viggo Mortensen. Which and was like his in, first movie, I think. Uh, not his first, but one. Yeah. And he's always in uh, Let Me In, the American remake of Let the Right One In. But, um, but those yeah, are both I, like sort of adolescent performances, right? Right. In more recent years, he was in uh, Alpha, uh, the yes. lead actor. And he was also in um, X-Men Apocalypse as Nightcrawler. And really also, interesting physical performer. He's like very yeah. gangly. It's funny that in an interview recently, John Waters said that if they were going to do a biopic of his life, that he that he would he want Cody Sixty. Yeah, um, I think partially because he had just seen Power of the Dog, uh, but yeah, I think that um, the casting is really interesting in the film because I've always I haven't seen a ton of things with Benedict Cumberbatch. He's one of those actors yeah. that like you look at his IMDb and like, oh, I've actually seen that. But like I've seen the imitation game. Yeah. I've never seen the show Sherlock, but he's always felt like one of those really good actors that n- kind of was too often in like Oscar contendee masterpiece. British historical like dramas. Yeah, he's like him, him and Eddie Redmayne kind of make like really <laughs> yes. solid films, but you just kind of like they occupy the same space. Definitely. Right. Even though isn't isn't he in Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, which you love? Bennett right? Cumberbatch is, yeah. He yeah. Plays, uh... So one of these sort of operatives they call him a scout right. hunter yeah but um but but in this film uh it, it's like if if i was reading the script i do not think i would think of benedict cumberbatch for the role no, not at all but the fact that he's kind of atypical casting makes it more kind of 
disturbing and unsettling yeah. and unpredictable yes. is, and hard to place down. And that's part of the yeah. character. I mean, as more you learn about him uh, as the film goes along, you know, you still don't entirely know how to feel about him. And he, oh, he yeah. has this, he has this quality where he's um, he's like very physical and, uh, you know, can do things like castrate, uh, you know, an animal. Like a hundred in a row. <laughs> I know. Uh, but there's also this kind of, um, it, this, there's just this simmering tension with him where it, it's not like he's going around just lashing out and being violent and like un, un, out of control, but he has that, like, you can tell that's there if he, if yes. If he's and he like pushed. likes being in a position of dominance and, like sort of enjoys people like being under his thumb and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, also, I mean, I think uh, Kirsten Dunst has been in many good films. And uh, to me, this and like Melancholia are like, these are like two of her best performances. She's very good in the film too. Everyone is great in the film. Well, this is just one of those ones where like, you just feel so much for each character. And it's not like some of them do bad things or like you might not necessarily agree with their like choices, but you just like, you just like want to understand these people and like hope that they <laughs> like, you know, like they come out of this like happier. Like you don't really want anyone to like really like it started off for Bennett Cumberbatch's character is like so unlikable. And like he just like presents this like super unlikable disposition to the world. But you just sort of figure out more stuff about him. And you're like, oh, I sort of get it. <laughs> like I sort of get why he'd be like this. So it was like very much a movie just sort of about like understanding you know, why people do the things they do and, and uh, you know, the sort of motivations that drive them. And a lot of it is sort of about like performing and, uh, you know, putting on a sort of character performance in your everyday life because the, the person the Benedict Cumberbatch character is trying to be is like very much uh, modeled on somebody who influenced him. So you sort of like, begin to understand the way he lives is like a tribute to like a guy he thinks is like responsible for him having the success he has. And we find out that the connection is a little deeper than it might've seemed at first, but um, it was just, it was just such an interesting to, to keep finding more stuff about this character who at the beginning is like this like asshole who you're like, this guy's like, what's his deal. And, you know, I just think it's an unbelievable performance from Bennett Cumberbatch. Well, it's such a sort like of understanding uh, direction from Jane Campion. And, I mean, she does a really good job of like putting you into trying to understand the position of these people in such extreme circumstances. Like the the lead character in the piano, uh, Holly Hunter plays like one of the it's like one of like the great film performances of like maybe like the last fifty years for me. And, uh, not to say that this is up there with that, but I think Benedict Cumberbatch in this is a very very special character and a very special performance. Right. I think that part of the film, you know, the title, The Power of the Dog, is this shape that is in the in the hillside, in the right? Yeah, the, the hillside. Right. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes along with what I was saying about how there's so much in the film that you're like, you're watching the scene and the next scene, and like it's not that complicated. It's like right there, but yeah. How, how you interpret what's right out there yeah you know it's kind of like it goes along with other i think too the film is also somewhat of a deconstruction of the kind of mythic western and what an ideal cowboy and man yeah. is yeah it's, it's it's definitely going and i don't want to 
say to get into much spoiler territory, but there's certainly um, kind of a question of not just like masculinity, but the image, like literal, like the like there, there's these magazines and the the kind of people's uh, projections or memories or their idea of what a man mm-hmm. is, what a cowboy is. Well, it's like so. it's set in early 20th century so sort of right around when like movies would have been a little more mainstream it's like right around sort of right after this is when like four horsemen of the apocalypse and rudolph valentino would have like really influenced sort of what people think of a cowboy as so um i don't know i don't know where i'm going with that but i don't know i just thought it was a really good movie i think um i think it might not be to everyone's taste like my friend obviously really didn't like it the first time but when i sort of told him what i thought about it he's like maybe i'll watch it again um so i just come in with the sort of open mind to this and um it's getting like really good reviews and might win best picture and that might make people come into it with a certain set of expectations that might not be the most uh beneficial to getting the most out of the movie um but I don't know just sort of if you come into it with an open mind it, it, don't expect to like be like oh this is the best movie i've ever seen but just sort of like let it be what it is i think i think most people would get something out of of, of watching this um for me i think this was like definitely one of my top tens of uh, of 2021 would it be up there for you as of now i i feel like i need to re-watch some films and watch more films to make like a really definitive like com- sort of list. comfortable top 10 list because like i very much like this film but there's some where i feel like i've seen the movie it's all i mean this may sound dismissive but i almost feel like there's some films that like you have to get out get the first viewing out of the way you know what yeah. i'm saying and they're like yeah you have to think about it and then you watch it again yeah it's like you know especially if you watch like a classic film like you should like don't watch citizen kane and go oh this is supposed to be the best film ever made like you don't have that in your head well that's like the ultimate sort of high expectations people are like that's that's it this is the best movie ever made um yeah which when stuff is like top 10 of the year best picture winner i think they also sort of suffer from a similar sort of attitude but um i mean for me like this is like highest highest top marks this is you know five out of five a plus power of the dog i love it <laughs> give me more power of the dog give me more jane campion 12 years is too long yeah make another did, period piece i have to say i really did like her mini series top of the lake, top of the lake. Uh, which was television mm-hmm. but uh yeah she's um uh you know really you know terrific director and uh i was saying before we recorded that if she gets nominated for best director what seems very likely because i think she's the front runner to win yeah she will be the first woman to ever receive two oscar nominations for best director because she was the second ever nominated when she was nominated for the piano well going from one person who has been nominated for possible best director multiple times to someone who has definitely been nominated for multiple best director uh, Oscar nominations. Uh, our second movie is the tragedy of Macbeth directed by Joel Cohen, who is this the it. first movie he's ever made without his brother as a producing partner or anything else. Yes. 
technically his the first number of movies they directed he was the only credited director yeah uh for example and ethan was the producer right like fargo uh he was the only one nominated for best director but they pretty much you know they made all their movies together and then a lot of them are credited to the cohen brothers right Right. after uh i think around oh brother art thou they just were all nominated so like when they won for no country old men and were nominated for true grit they actually both got nominations but Joel Cohen, out on his own, uh, starring his wife, Frances McDormand, um, as well as Denzel Washington in the title role of Macbeth. Uh, this is a tale of revenge set in medieval Scotland based on the play by William Shakespeare. Uh, it premiered September 24th at the New York Film Festival, um, which you attended, right? Yeah, got to see Joel Cohen, Denzel Washington, Frances McDormand, and a number of the other cast members in attendance a full three months before the rest of america got to see it as it was released wide december 25th 2021 a metacritic score of 88 and a rotten tomato score of 94 um you're not a huge shakespeare guy are you uh (laughs) as much as any other man (laughs) i i mean i will say that uh that some of my absolute favorite film adaptations of Shakespeare have been other Macbeth films. I love Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. I would say uh, the best film I've ever seen based on Shakespeare is Roman Plansky's Macbeth. Which is very intense. Yeah. Um, And that's something that this version definitely captures is just like the sheer amount of bloodshed and just sort of how terrifying the events that happen in it really are um it's it's not super violent but it's it's the tension is there it's so oh my god the woman who played the weird sister scared me so much yeah it's creepy (laughs) she was so creepy i can't remember the name of the woman but she's like the most gifted uh physical actor i I may have ever seen Um, she's one of those actresses that feels like it's just like you found her like in the box on the side of the highway like and i don't mean that as like a criticism for <laughs> yes, physical look. she just like <laughs> open it up and there are the weird sisters she's ready to go right um but this so do you want to give a little background of how this phone came about i, I mean do you know no i don't <laughs> you, so Fra- you tell me <laughs> francis mcdormand played lady Macbeth when she was like 13 like in Um, middle school or something right yeah she was very young and uh then more recently she did it on stage and she approached her husband joel cohen and said you should make a film version of macbeth and he said no i don't care i don't want to do that and (laughs) he kept thinking about it though and he ended up he got drawn to it mm-hmm. and he said in an interview uh, and at the New York film festival screening that there's kind of two ways they could have made the film. They could have rented a castle in Scotland and gotten horses and filmed it, you know, in real locations, or yeah. they could have gone the opposite way and had it be very theatrical, you know, film it on sound stages, be very stylized. And yeah. that's the version they go with. And it's like German um, expressionist. Like right. I really think the, serious shadows and sort of odd dreamlike sets and stuff like that. Right. It, the uh, the film is very much like Carl Theodore Dreyer, F.W. Murnau, Ingmar Bergman, Bella Tarr. And also, I think one thing that's key to mention about it is that it, it, they've talked about it. Joel Cohen and the actors have talked about it. 
as a film noir that mm-hmm. you may think on the surface, like I think even Joel Cohen himself was thinking, you know, oh, Cohen's, you know, making Shakespeare or Macbeth. That doesn't necessarily sound like a fit, but you know, the basic premise of Macbeth is that a married couple decided to murder a guy and they do it and it goes horribly wrong and it just gets worse and worse. And that's like the premise. <laughs> it's of like double indemnity. <laughs> I know. And it's, and it's like, uh, and it's in black and white mm-hmm. uh, and it's keeps the original text of the play, but the original dialogue, but it definitely condenses it because the movie is only about an hour and 45 minutes. Yes. But this is also, I think, by far Shakespeare's shortest play. So uh, it lends itself to being adapted as a movie because it, it is very much something you can fit in under two hours. And it right. stuff just happens so quickly in it. Like it goes so quickly from being like, oh, maybe we should kill him to, oh, the king is dead. It, the ki- kingdom is in chaos. It happens in like 10 minutes. It all happens very, very quickly. Well, and it's part of the uh, thing that makes the film so compelling is that this is very much not a let's point a camera and, and just film a stage production. This is like a incredible work of cinema. Like it mm-hmm. is, it, it is in the, I mean, it, it draws on and is inspired by, and there's aspects of it that are theatrical, but it's also very cinematic at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it, this is a movie that like makes incredible use of close-ups. I mean, some of the, the close-ups of Denzel and, uh, Corey Hawkins as Macduff, I thought was really, really good. And he has some, some very powerful close-ups. Uh, the casting is just fantastic. And it's, it felt so like temporary. I thought, I didn't realize at all that Corey Hawkins was, was in this. And like when he popped us up as Macduff, I was like, this is perfect. Macduff is yeah. like the action hero. Corey Hawkins, this is amazing. Um, he's having quite a year. He was also in, uh, uh, in the Heights. In the Heights, yeah. Um, and Six Underground, which came out last year. Michael Bay. Um. Yeah. Well, I do think that uh, Denzel Washington, um, I think, okay, Denzel Washington, one of our greatest living actors. Yes. Um, half of his movies are like disappointing generic action thrillers and like, yeah. better, and squander his time. Man on fire, you, out of time. Well, do you agree that like half of his movies kind of. Yeah, it's like, a lot like Robert De Niro in the last 25 years or so. Yeah. A lot of um, sort but, of paycheck movies. I know, it, and there's there's just movies where it's like I haven't I shouldn't judge them I haven't seen it but like the, the Equalizer, equalizer. <laughs> I know. but um you know it's like Denzel Washington like doesn't have the greatest track record especially in the last like fifteen years of like yes. working with really great interesting filmmakers he like you know he, he but like Joel Cohen is like high on the list of the greatest living directors especially in this country never worked with Denzel before right. Right. And I think that this film is like one of his best performances in a number of years because he has it like like the production of the film. It's there's a theatricality to the performances, but I think almost more than anyone else in the film, there's this world weary. Yes, that's like exactly the phrase I would use to describe him in this. Right. And there's there's uh, there, you know, there is a certain amount where you know, because of the text, the dialogue, there's a theatricality to it. And there's, you know, there's kind of an artifice to it, but he does such an amazing job of grounding it and making it feel vital and urgent. And like, these are real people really doing something. Yes. I mean, he, he's really good in what is like 
one of the key scenes when he's sort of reasoning to himself whether he should or should not commit the murder before Lady Macbeth has come in and really like steeled him to do the deed. And he's just, I mean, you hardly ever see Denzel like that sort of, um, uh, it's, I mean, uh, what am I trying to describe this? I guess like uh, vulnerable, I guess, like vulnerable, yeah. sort of indecisive because so often he's like the alpha male. I mean, he's right. Denzel, like one of the most handsome you know, men who's ever lived. So just to sort of see him like in that sort of state of confusion and indecision and like sort of like self-judgment, I thought was like incredible and something I'd never really seen from him before. And it's Macbeth is it's an interesting role because I mean, for a lot of people, Lady Macbeth is the standout memorable role from it. So it's like named after uh, Lord Macbeth, but he's kind of not the main character. Um, Lady Lady Macbeth is very much like the one who's had more sort of impact on literature in general. And uh, like in Stratford, there are four statues of Shakespeare characters like at Shakespeare's birthplace. And Lady Macbeth is, is one of the four, like with Hamlet and Falstaff, who was chosen. Um, so I, Denzel does a really good job of centering it around this indecisive sort of person who is driven to do something they didn't really want to do. But once it's happened, that sort of deed takes over like all aspect of the person's life. And I mean, there's a great line in it. Macbeth hath murdered sleep uh, right after he like sort of does the deed. And it's in those scenes, like after he's done it and guilt racked and the sort of indecision and confusion and vulnerability before he commits the act that I think were like the sort of standout moments of the movie. Um, I think I also, I, it I sort of can take, take a little while to get to the murder, but once we get to the murder, it like it really, really goes. And the whole rest of the movie, I thought was like very, very thrilling. In the previous episode, it's kind of an interesting comparison to West Side Story. It's like there's these really iconic musical numbers in West Side Story, and you know, you know, set pieces, if you will, or dialogue scenes, uh, monologues, and. Uh, Macbeth and it's interesting to see how he stages them like yes. the double double toil and trouble like how that tomorrow stage. and tomorrow and tomorrow <laughs> right yeah I mean it's I it was really great watching it on a really big screen like yeah. that first shot with like this the birds flying around in the air oh I mean the black and white photography is is unbelievable I it's mean, almost surreal yeah parts. I mean there's like one the one scene where he comes back from the battle and it's like a starlit sort of sky and the stars are just like unbelievable. And uh, the King played by uh, Brennan Gleeson, like has a sort of like uh, cape that like, like represents the stars and it like looks exactly the same as the stars in the sky. It's like a very stylized um, version of Macbeth that very much is a movie. Uh, like you said before, it makes really good use of uh, sets, especially in the sort of like shadow play and stuff like that. Uh, there's a really good scene where he has like the hallucination of the dagger and he's walking towards the dagger, but it's like an archway. So he keeps going in and out of shadow. So this really, I mean, this is like textbook use of shadows in a movie, this whole thing, which is very film noir, as you mentioned before. So now that you mentioned it, film noir is like a pretty obvious sort of influence on this movie, but uh uh, for me, one of the best Shakespeare adaptations uh, in, in a long time, actually. 
now that yeah. I think about I, it. I wonder why, maybe like you said, part of it's the length, but that sh- uh, there's been so many good Macbeth films. Well, it's just like a revenge story and, you know, stuff happens. Like Hamlet, nothing really, <laughs> nothing really happens in Hamlet. It's just like good because it's like, uh, you know, it's good literature. It's like good poetry. And there, there's really good poetry in Macbeth, but also the story is it's just a more compelling like revenge sort of story i mean revenge tales are you know they, they've been making movies out of revenge stories since movies started so i think it just really lends itself to that right um, on apple tv but if it's playing in a theater it's really worth seeing on a theater screen. i believe it actually just became available on apple tv yeah uh, today that we're recording friday january 14th so uh, <laughs> I think I think it's free to everyone who has an Apple product. I don't know if that's true, but if it is, I got a new your... iPhone. I got my new iPhone, uh, and I got three months of Apple TV. Yeah, there you go. So can't cast it to my television, so I don't want to watch anything on my phone or my laptop. But your stupid product things where they don't have it like work on other products, you know. That's the but, sort of Apple way. <laughs> I know. Uh. So both of us but really like this. Gonna, yeah, I was, uh, but they're like Netflix and Apple are like the only ones that would make this probably. Even oh, though, 100%. But it's like, part of me is like, okay, so we have Joel Cohen doing a Shakespeare adaptation with Denzel Washington. It's like, <laughs> these know, are the movies like, that should be being made. I, I know it's like the Equalizer 2 probably made like a bajillion dollars in this movie, even if it wasn't the pandemic, would make like 20 million, if no. that, you know, 10 million. I was thinking like a million. <laughs> Yeah, but this but this like, is a this is the perfect version of Macbeth to show in a classroom. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, are you, you're a big fan of the Polanski film though too? Uh, I haven't seen it in a while. I remember the murder of Macduff's family in that version being extremely traumatic. Um, that scene well, staged really well in this one. You but know, I think one of the you know one of the reasons people have like said that it's so violent. because it is very similar to what happened to his own wife and child yeah well and it uh, was the Payne. first it was the first film he directed after the yeah. Tate murders yes so pretty pretty hardcore as you might imagine yeah. um i mean the the murder of Macduff's family is like i mean that's really when like Macbeth is like gone beyond the pale that's like the sort of ultimate act of like moral you know just like degradation so uh, it's, a, it's a very powerful story <laughs> i think denzel like never acted in uh, a Macbeth production before this or something like that. He'd um, been in a Shakespeare film before. One directed by Kenneth Branagh. Much Ado yes. About Nothing. Um, yep. All right. <laughs> we will move on to movie three, which uh, similarly to the, the previous two, uh, was financed by a streamer. Uh, and a period piece. And a period piece. So that's sort of connective tissue of all three of these. It is Being the Ricardos, directed by Aaron Sorkin who's also done Molly's Game and The Trial of the Chicago 7, starring Nicole Kidman, Javier Bardem, and J.K. Simmons. The movie is an in-depth look at a turbulent week during the production of I Love Lucy, where Lucy is accused of being a communist and also finds out that she is pregnant, which brings up some issues with uh, the censors and uh, the people in charge of CBS. Uh, it originally premiered December 7th, 2021, with a U.S. wide wide release of December 10th, it has been available on Amazon for pretty much the last month. A Metacritic score of 60, a Rotten Tomato score of 68, and the 
Golden Globe winner for Best Actress Drama for Nicole Kidman. Um, I don't. I've mentioned this to you before. I've never seen an episode of I Love Lucy, so I don't know if I was necessarily the target audience for this movie. But I'm a big fan of Aaron Sorkin zippy dialogue <laughs> and depictions of 1950s television. So even though this wasn't the best movie I've ever seen, I did enjoy it very much. What did you think of being the Ricardos? I enjoyed it. My main problem with the film is that even though I think both lead actors are great actors and they end up giving good performances, I still think they're miscast. I think Nicole Kidman, I just never got over the fact it was Nicole Kidman. I never thought that she looked like Lucille Ball, that she sounded like Lucille Ball. It felt like Luce, it felt like her giving a performance. Uh, and you could and she, argue she well, looked weird. I mean, like the makeup yeah, they I, used for her was yeah. kind of unsettling. Yeah, it, we're <laughs> not criticizing a woman of a certain age, her looks, but she just looks almost like like a digitally like i'm not saying they actually did this but they, no. she just looks unsettling it like, almost seems like they tried too hard to make her look like lucille ball and it, it might have direction. been yeah it might have been better for it just to be like her performance that convinces you it's lucille ball and they didn't necessarily need to attempt to make her look just like her because in the attempt we get a sort of uncanny valley thing where right. <laughs> you're sort of noticing how much they're trying to make her look like her. And it's been one of the sort of unfortunate trends of the last, how long would you say it is like six years where all the people who win best actor and actress seem to play historical figures. Um, oh, Rami Malek <laughs> and Bohemian Rhapsody. And yeah, there's been a lot of, I mean, I remember, I think there was like three Oscars in a row where all but one of the uh, nominees for best actor were, you know, someone playing a real person. Yeah. But yeah, I think that uh, in a Javier Bardem, it's just like, does not look anything like Desi Arnaz and he's like 15 years too old to play him. Um, <laughs> he's good. Like he's once very charismatic. Of, right. It's like once you accept that they really don't look like them and they kind of don't work in the role. Yeah. It's like if you just go, it, you almost have to think of it as like, this is a character named Lucia Ball. This is a character named Desi Arnaz. And this yeah. is based on real people but it's almost like they're playing an interpret it's all in a weird way it's almost like interpretation of like Macbeth it's like you're not supposed to think that like oh this is supposed to be <laughs> a, a real guy <laughs> or exactly like them and I think that um you know this doesn't bother me too much but this the three things that the film are about you know Lucy finding out she's pregnant they're going to incorporate into the show mm -hmm. uh Desi, you know, having this tabloid having story affair yeah. and Lucy being accused of communist. That totally did not happen in one actual week. It happened over <laughs> yeah. like two years. Yeah. Um, and it's like for dramatic license, Sorkin put it in one week. Um, but I feel like the film is entertaining. It's uh, you know, it's it's interesting seeing some of the, you know, even if it's fabricated like the timeline, it's interesting seeing a dramatization of that. Um I just felt like there was not really a great in-depth, like, I don't know exactly why Aaron Sorkin made this film besides, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I don't feel like there was 
a like there wasn't a there there like there was just yeah. like he wanted to tell the story but it, it's like why like tell the <laughs> 70 years like what like i don't know that there's like you know what what whatever you thought of the trial of chicago 7 like that had definite you know relations to what's going on in america now yeah and felt sort of of yeah. the moment i just didn't quite understand like what was the yeah it's it's like make. a movie that would have been made in like the, the like eighties or, or something like that. Yeah, or or it, yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I I mean, I do I do think Nicole Kidman is like one of our like very greatest living actresses. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she is one thing I love about her is that she'll do like Oscar contendery movies, and they're often like actually good, like Lion. Yeah. Um, but like she does. Lars von Trier's Dogville and Norbert Lanthimos. Uh, well, but like she'll do like hardcore auteur films. Like she's oh, in yeah. Robert Eggers' The Northman. Yeah. Like she said in interviews, like she wants to work with the great auteur. She was in Stanley Kubrick's last film, yeah. Eyes Wide Shut. And she like will go back and forth between doing, you know, kind of more conventional. Yeah. And doing like hardcore, like art house stuff. Yeah. And I think that, um, she gives it her all in this film and like and it's like i do i did enjoy the performances but i never quite like i rewatched last year a few months ago behind the candelabra with michael douglas as liberace and like most of the time michael douglas is an actor who, he's a great actor but he kind of is always like michael douglas yeah. five minutes five minutes into that he is liberace like it yeah. is an amazing performance i never got over that hill ever during Ricardo's, I know it was like Nicole Kidman giving a performance. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like the reason for the movie was to have an actress give an award-contending performance as Lucille Ball. Um, it, it's one of those like double-edged things where like it probably would have been better to cast someone that wasn't like as giant a movie star as Nicole Kidman, but it wouldn't have gotten it made probably. Like, no, yeah. Know, my my yeah. questioning of like why is this film get made like let's make a film about a 70 year old sitcom and like, yeah. yeah Which most people these... have never seen who well, no, are alive now. No, they, like it's still incredibly watched. People, I mean, people like over the age of, of 50 or, you know, people younger than 70, I think are very familiar with it because it was on syndication for like a really, really long right. time. I, maybe 17 year olds that are on TikTok aren't watching it, but I think most people, you're not, you didn't, but most people yeah. our age and older have like grown up watching it. Uh, most people. Yeah, no, I, I think that a lot of people have. Uh, if I they think were, a lot. I don't know about most a lot well a lot of people have i mean it's definitely an insight into like a version of culture that just simply doesn't exist anymore where i think they say that like 50 million people are watching i love lucy and you know for the 1950 population that's like a huge percentage of the country right all well, tuning in at the same time to watch the same thing which with all these different streaming services and stuff like that we really don't have any like cultural thing that is the size of an I Love Lucy. So it was just sort of interesting to get a snapshot of that different time. I don't know if the movie's really like saying anything about media or anything like that, really. I guess um, you could argue this is really bending over backwards, but it's like Nicole Kidman, you never can quite get over the fact that she's Nicole Kidman, at least for me. Yeah. But um, like part of the film is about how there's Lucille Ball and there's Lucy Ricardo. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's two, like she's playing kind of two roles in the film. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And I also just, this, some of Aaron Sorkin's dialogue just kind of annoys me. <laughs> Well, like you can he, definitely sort of tell sometimes when it's like cut a the flower bit. No, not cut the flower. Cut the yeah. it's like, <laughs> like he'll have kind of a funny idea and then he has to repeat it seven times. Yeah, the film, he's know? very much sort of like in love with the sound of his own dialogue. But for the most part, I'm along with him. You know, I no, like the too. sound of his dialogue. Too. But uh, I don't know. I think it for him, obviously, you could see the the interest in making it because he was a writer for TV shows for a long time. He like wrote you know like a huge percentage of the episodes of the west wing so he would have been like familiar with this like you know grinding week in week out and looking for like a narrative arc and sort of stuff like that but two people who aren't like in tv i I think it might not be super interesting well it's interesting besides his very first scripts like a few good men which is based on his play almost i think just about everything he's written and the two previous films he's directed are all based on true stories yeah you know steve jobs the social network Moneyball, molly's game charlie chicago seven charlie wilson's war i mean the american president even to some extent is based on real events (laughs) yeah but um (laughs) not like real real no uh, inspired by real events well it's interesting it's like i was one thing that the performances made me think of do you ever see oliver stone's nixon with anthony hopkins no that seems like a fascinating movie but i've never seen it yeah um i I do think it's a good film but that's one where anthony hopkins really does not look like nixon (laughs) but he so embodies nixon and gives such a good performance that you just kind of go with it and you're like okay he doesn't really look like him yeah but it but but damn it what a performance (laughs) i know but there and there's kind of this this strong vision and commentary from oliver stone and i felt like you know you have aaron sorkin's ratatat dialogue and it's it's enjoyable but i didn't feel like there was enough like interesting commentary or reason for the movie to have been made to overcome the kind of off casting if that makes sense no i it definitely does i don't mean even i don't even really get like the, i got much more of a sense of who like lucille ball was as a performer and a creative mind from watching it i guess i get that she's like smart and she understands comedy and she's dedicated to her show but i, I feel like i could have <laughs> told you that before i saw the movie um and you'd never seen an episode no exactly right. <laughs> but i would just be like of course she is she's lucille ball so um i don't know I, I guess the best part of it was the the sort of i don't know chemistry but like the back and forth between javier bardem and nicole yeah they're both good and i also think there's good scenes between the actors that play um william friley and vivian vance yes yeah jk simmons uh, and uh i don't know the name of the the actress right like the one who plays vivian vance like they they they, she doesn't look anything like vivian vance she's like way too young looking i mean it's like (laughs) javier bardem's way too old and the woman i mean it's just I, 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 it's just odd casting choices yeah. to me. Like I, one thing I do disagree with though, is that there was this kind of Twitter uproar about how they said Deborah Messing should have played Lucille Ball. And it's like, okay, Deborah Messing is not Nicole Kidman. You know? Also, isn't she like older than Nicole Kidman? 
not to like bring age too much into it, but I think if Nicole right Kidman being age. pretty She's old like, is a problem, then wouldn't well, it be no, the no. same thing with her? Well, we can. Uh, I mean, Deborah Messing is like. I but think also, yeah, right like what's what's the best performance Deborah Messing has given in a movie? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're the but the, yeah, like well, the, they're like the same, almost exactly the same okay. age. But I mean, but well, that's too- people online are so overly concerned with the actor looking like the person, right? But to it, the that's point not- where like that was like the whole thing with that, why. Rami Malek won the Oscar. He's like, oh my God, didn't he look like Freddie It's like, yeah, once we get past that, can we sort of evaluate it as a performance? Um, yeah. But well, and it's, and it like he so shouldn't have won Best Actor. Yeah. I mean, that was like, like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to like riot in the streets if Nicole Kidman wins, but there are obviously people I would prefer to win over her. Uh, I mean, Kristen Stewart and Spencer, Alana Heim and Licorice Pizza. There's probably some others I can't think of off the top of my head, but I won't riot in the streets if Nicole Kidman wins. I think she'll yeah. be deserving. She won an Oscar for the hours. Is that right? Yeah. As the person who Virginia was uh, calling out the award said, buy a nose, Nicole oh, Kidman. really? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, no I, I mean, I, like I said, she is one of my favorite living actresses and I admire. And do you think her sort of like uh, reputation has improved sort of over the past 20 years? I feel like she's like, occupied like a space of being in there with like the not necessarily daniel day lewis but like among our greatest actors i feel like that wasn't necessarily the case when she was in batman forever well Um, i think but she's been in interesting movies from the very beginning like you ever see gus van sant's to die for uh not the whole thing but that's like really really early joaquin phoenix isn't it Right. And real and you know, one of her earliest films. But yeah, I mean, she's always worked with interesting directors. I she's think of her early as like Days of Thunder. Well, but Moulin Rouge is like a really like Oscar yeah. film and it, Eyes yeah. Wide Shut, 99. Yeah. But that's around, yeah, I think around yeah, Dogville, Large on Trier, 2003. I mean, she's always I mean, I but she always... she is an actress, so I think with like every year that passes, she's sort of like more you know, concretes herself as like one of our greatest sort of respected actors. And uh, I think this definitely contributes to that. Well, I'll say this. I listened to her just very recently on NPR and she said that she reached a certain age. And even though she had won an Oscar, like she was not getting offers like she was not getting interesting roles and that's one of the reasons she started uh, producing some of the work. You know, she got she wanted to make the film Rabbit Hole. Yeah. um, and she, you know, was a producer on Big Little Lies. She said that, you know, if there weren't the roles coming to her, she was going to help, you know, get projects off Reese the ground. Reese Witherspoon, I think, did a similar thing. Right. And she's even younger than her. It's That's what's yeah. depressing, though, is that there's... I remember Charlize Theron said a few years ago that um, Wonder Woman was being made. And they approached her about being in it. And she was like, oh, I, I'm flattered. She's like, no, 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 to play You're her You're going to play her mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm only like 40. <laughs> I know, I know. But, and like Gina Davis said in an interview recently, there was an actor uh, that once was like complaining about like how, you know, oh, you're too old to be my love interest. And he was 20 years older than her. Oh my God. And he was complaining that like, she, there was unrealistic for them to be love interests. It's like, well, I'm 20 years older than you. I guess being the Ricardos is kind of about that. Like how she was like a very glamorous sort of like almost a sex symbol. Like when I think of like Dance Girl Dance, like her character is like yeah. the sexy one. Well, she's the the film. It's interesting. She was like a 
she never was like close to being a Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, like big movie star, but she was a successful actress to a certain degree. And she, but she completely redefined herself in television. I mean, she had a successful radio show. Much, but like a much sort of less glamorous sort of. Right. uh, At least like character image and vision. I guess that's sort of what America wanted was like the housewife. Um, well, and it's interesting how, uh, I mean, the one thing I feel like the film doesn't do uh, to as much as I would have wanted is like she revolution, she and Desi like totally ref- revolutionized television in its infancy, like so yep. much of like, you know, syndication and, you know, you know, canned laughter and you didn't know, she like they, produce Star Trek? Right. Yeah. Desi Lou studio. And um, they got Carl Freund who shot Metropolis to shoot i love lucy he was the cinematographer really? yeah i mean yeah. she wanted to get the best of the they best. sort of like give uh i mean some of this uh of the movie is sort of like documentary like and just sort of like presenting facts about i love lucy like it was sort of like pedagogical in some ways it could have been more like you mentioned there like about some of the sort of revolutionary things that they brought into tv in some ways it could have like given you a little a little more uh, they could have leaned into the sort of fake documentary because I don't know if we've mentioned, but there's these sort of like weird fake interviews with writers of I Love Lucy, which kind of present themselves as being real when uh, they very much obviously aren't real. So I don't know. It was, it's sort of a strangely conceived movie, but uh, like we're sort of rambling on it. But well, I've liked they, it. I mean, I thought it was Yeah, great. I enjoyed it well enough, but uh, I... Um... It almost felt like to, I don't say this about everything, but it almost felt like it might've been richer as like a 10 part miniseries. And they could have like gone, like could have taken. They could have the, separated the different incidents and allowed and made them to it breathe. more. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, cause it's like, I don't know that, you know, contriving that all three of these things are happening at the same time really makes. The you kind of forget thing. about some of them. At some point, it's like, oh, the pregnancy thing's still happening. I, I kind of forgot because the communism thing occupied so much of this. Oh, the affair is, oh, that's still going on. I kind of forgot about that. So I think you're right that uh, like the like the feud TV show, I mean, there's been a sort of a space for uh, period pieces about the entertainment industry being miniseries. So I think that, yeah, you might be onto something that this might have been better. Um with a little more room to breathe because it's uh, also like there's sometimes they have flashbacks where you just feel like why this flashback like there's so much to cover you know <laughs> yes like, no definitely you know, and yeah. uh they looked oddly the same age in the flashbacks as well <laughs> yeah but but no, anyway but, i think this is like a three out of five yeah. um I thought it was enjoyable. It's got really good acting performances. The dialogue is pretty snappy, um, but ultimately I didn't really care too much. Yeah. I, I do feel like um, that it's not the most, like, you know, we talked about like power of the dog and tragedy of Beth or like really works a cinema. Like this could have been like, it's kind of television. It's about TV, but it isn't yeah. all that striking as like a film. <laughs> no. And Aaron Sorkin worked a lot in TV and, uh, uh, he has yet to really prove himself as a director of movies. Would you say Molly's Game is, is the best thing he's done? Yeah, I actually think it is. And even though it's his first one, it's interesting. I listened to his DGA interview and uh, David O. Russell 
um, was moderating it, and he was just gushing over the movie. And he, there was even he said that like there was a point where he was considering directing it with Jennifer Lawrence playing Lucille Ball. Well, I think Jennifer but, Lawrence can do anything. So, <laughs> and she, I mean, yeah, I mean, she's like she's funny. Thing, she's like funny. Yeah, Nicole Kidman is in a barrel laugh. No, she is. She. Yeah. I think you really. I think that's sort of part of what people appreciate. It's you can sort of tell she worked really hard to try to be funny, but you know we shouldn't be giving out awards for people you know doing stuff out of their comfort zone necessarily. But um, yeah. Jennifer Lawrence is an interesting sort of alternate universe. Well, and the originally too, Kate Blanchett was going to be the lead in the Stork when like Sorkin was doing it. Kate Blanchett would have been outstanding, yeah. I think. But I don't know. Well, I I cannot. I don't see think her of her as funny either, though. No, <laughs> but she. It's like Nicole Kidman is like uh, so good, but uh, there is kind of this like almost like Grace Kelly regal quality to her, and like Kate Blanchett can be a little bit more like down to earth, uh, and a little bit more like. Uh, I, yeah, she she can be a little. I also feel like uh, she can be. She's really really good at p- doing period pieces. Like she like Carol. Like she just seems like she could be from. The 50s. Oh, she's got like a timeless sort of face and quality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jennifer Lawrence. Anyway. I just can't stop thinking about that. That would have been really interesting. Um, yeah. She would have yeah. been about. She would have been a little too young. Yeah, probably. Probably. yeah, probably. Yeah, but she's sort of. I think in like every movie, she's playing someone older than she really is. Um, Probably, that's probably isn't true uh, <laughs> anyway <laughs> i think we've been going long enough when i just start making things up i think that's a good uh, good sign that we should probably stop recording um we're gonna probably have a few more episodes coming in the near future because there's just so much to to talk about so many so many movies coming out uh i still want to see parallel mothers Pedro Almodovar's new film great still want to see if I ever get to see it in the theater, Memoria, Japan, where Seth Nichols film starting to crawling across America at the moment. One screen at a time. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to see the three hour Japanese film Drive My Car. Yeah, that that's been getting there. really, really good news. It yeah. won like a some national. It, I think it won like all three, like award, New York, like. Los Angeles, and like there was something that Critics like, Awards. Been, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I also really want to see um, a hero. Uh, Oscar Fahari's new film. Yeah, I haven't seen too many uh, foreign movies this year, now that I think about it. Um, But But we will catch up. Yeah, we'll see. A lot of good stuff out. Uh, Thank you for listening. We will be back with you guys next time.